So I think we're good enough to get going here, so we'll begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, as we look at an overview of the book of Revelation, we ask you to help us to understand the overall message so that we can apply it as a book of faith that is intended and uh, is um, for a building up of the church, for something that brings us closer to Christ, for something that helps us to appreciate uh, the value of being connected in one another in Christ. And as we continue to look at these uh, different chapters and messages, help us to be able to, to look at the ability of us to be good followers of the Lamb as you present yourself in the gospel. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so, well, it looks like Revelation's a hot topic. You know? <laughs> I, was, I was sort of thinking that I should probably take this particular book and do a series or something like that because people tend to be very confused about it, and, and really it's an easy book. So because of that, uh, maybe sometime in the future we'll do that. But what I want to do today is just an overview because we have an hour, and an overview is one that just lays the, the outline out there. Um, helps you to, to get an idea of what the basic message is, why it was written, um, what some of the basic signs and symbols are all about, and the style of writing in the literature, so that you're able to, if you go back and start reading it, you can just, with a few little notes and references, you can get through it pretty easily, and you can definitely understand the real message. Um, once again, um, last week I mentioned this, but when you get those different books that say, the unlocked code of the book of Revelation, um, don't believe it. All right. Anytime you hear a lot of hype around the book of Revelation as if it's you know, going to predict China's rise and conquering of Russia and all this kind of stuff, and um, just ignore it. It's not accurate. Um, there's always an outside chance that there could be some layering going on, but, but even so, uh, the, the primary message and, um, of the book of Revelation is, is actually not that difficult to get. The, the trick is, though, it was written in a style of language called apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, which we don't use today. And so what the intent is, they wrote the book of Revelation for everyone who was in the church to be able to understand that these signs and symbols represented present-day um, people and events. And then, therefore, you are supposed to read this and you interpret those signs and symbols into the present-day events. And then after you do that, you get the uplifting and the comforting and the basic overall message, which is hang in there. I know that there's persecution happening, and you're a part of it. But if you hang in there, God himself will deliver you like he promised. That's basically the message. Um, it was written during a time of religious persecution, uh, Christians were being um, rounded up, and, and it was illegal to be Christian. Um, they were being killed oftentimes, and actually in the uh, persecutions that were taking place at the time of Nero, it started to turn the, the, the people who were formerly against Christians to feel sorry for them because it was so extreme, and that actually added, the, the, the martyrs actually added more members to the church. Well, then they had the uh, later persecutions after Nero, which was Domitian, and um, that was around 95 AD. So this book was more than likely written around that time, it was written around 95 AD, and it refers back to Nero more than a few times because that was a memory that was fairly recent. Nero was around between you know, 68 and 70 AD when those persecutions were happening, so it was it was like we would look back to maybe like World War II or something like that, and you draw a lot of parallels from that. Um, something else to keep in mind is that um, the way that John wrote, he tended to use a lot of strong signs and symbols that represented um, heavenly as well as earthly um, references. And so therefore, once you understand what those references mean, it makes it a lot easier to interpret um, what the overall message is. So, for example, in the United States, if I say um, an owl, what would you think of? You would think of, you know, maybe wisdom, right, because of the big eyes and, the, the, you know, the different types of uh, um, caricatures which happen with owls. Or if I say eagle, you would think, you know, soaring and strength and, you know, sign of the country. And, well, in a similar way, these different signs and symbols meant things to the people in their day. 
And for the Christian or the Christian Jew specifically, or the um, non-Christian Jew who has a very good understanding of the Old Testament, a lot of these symbols and signs were being pulled from the Old Testament, which were written for a particular purpose in their own day, but there are parallels. For example, in the book of Daniel, you might remember that they had these different beasts, right? Remember the beasts? So these different beasts stood for different empires. And the idea is, is one beast comes after another. You've got the, you know, the Persians and the Medes and, and the Greeks and the Babylonians and these different kingdoms. And then finally, you, you have the, the Messiah who comes in. And it's the end of you know, those evil reign of those different you know, empires. So that's what that represents. Well, in a similar way, the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation, um, the author John is writing a similar scenario showing these different beasts. And these beasts will, in a similar way, be done away with by the conquering Messiah. And so there are parallels that happen. Um, you know those horses that you hear, the horses of the Apocalypse? Well, that goes back actually to a reference in Zechariah where they use um, horses as well. Now, if you think of Zechariah and you think of the book of Daniel, those are also what they would call apocalyptic literature. It's a style of writing that was very popular um, in the time probably between uh, 200 and the time of Jesus and 100 A.D. So the 200 B.C. Uh, to 100 A.D. is when that era, a lot of apocalyptic literature was being written. And it wasn't just biblical literature. Um, there were other things, for example, the Book of Enoch, um, that was another one, and there was this intertestamental literature where this was very popular and very common, so people were familiar with it. So anyway, keep that in mind for the basic overview. Um, there is a connection to the Gospel of John, but the style of writing is different than John. Some argue that it is John, some argue that it's not the same John of the Gospel, and actually, people are arguing about who the John of the Gospel was, whether he was the beloved disciple or the Apostle John, or if he was this other disciple named John. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But the thing is, the book of Revelation says, I, John. And so there's always been a connection with the John of the Gospel. But there are also a lot of differences in style, and even some of the theology is a little different. So as long as you keep that in mind, once again, we kind of get into that kind of vagueness when you're talking about history. And um, you've, I've already explained how it was very common in those days to assign a name to something if you happen to have an influence by that person. You know, for example, those who were around at the time of John Paul II, um, who were very affected by him, um, would write a letter according to John Paul II. And I mean, that was just kind of like how it happened. Okay, so first of all, Let's, uh, let's kind of get into this timeline because that's the thing that tends to get uh, the most crazy when it comes to people looking at the book of Revelation as strict prophecy. And it is prophecy. There are prophetic elements in it. But when you're looking at those prophetic elements, you, you should do it in a way that first and foremost applies it to the current situation of the day in which the letter was written. All right, so for example, if the author is talking about the beast with the 666, you know, what do people talk about? You know, well, that's Hitler, or that's the Pope, you know, or that's, you know, a future uh, Russian emperor or something like that. You know, people have a tendency to try to draw the later parallels without looking at the primary references. Um, this is a good example of that because that beast, uh, most scripture scholars will say that it represents Nero. Um, the numbers in the Hebrew, the numbers as well as the Hebrew letters have a correlation. And if you take those particular numbers, 666, and draw out the Hebrew letter equivalents and spell it out, it spells out Nero. And so most scripture scholars will definitely say um, that that beast in particular is referring to Nero, the Roman emperor, who lived around 70 AD when there were persecutions. Well, that would make sense, right? If you're going to write about this big, terrible um, figure who is working in conjunction with the dragon or Satan, then it would make sense that the person who is doing all this harm to Christians would be referenced in that number. So does that, that makes sense, right? Now, it's also true, though, just like a lot of scripture, that there can be parallels that you can add to that. 
Um, history repeats itself. You've probably heard that said before. Well, there are things when, you know, for example, in, in the letters of John, when he refers to these antichrists, um, that there throughout history have been people like Nero that continually do the things that Nero did, persecute the church um, as a sign of immorality and um, in the end is, you know, killed or conquered or overcome or whatever. Um, these types of patterns continue throughout history. And the point of the book of Revelation is that will not happen forever. There will come a time when the Messiah will fulfill his promises once and for all. And then when he does that, that'll be an end to all those types of beasts. And that's described actually in the book symbolically. First of all, the beast is subdued. Michael and Archangel and all the, the spiritual battles that happen. The beast is subdued for a period of a thousand years. We'll talk about the thousand years. Um, then after the end of that, um, the beast will be allowed to have a, um, you know, kind of a last minute um, frenzy where he kind of gets a lot of action and, and really tries to really do the best he can to destroy uh, the church and implement evil. And then at the end of that time, then there is the, um, you know, the Messiah comes and it's the end of the deal. So, so this is an example of parallelism because it refers to what happened to Nero. He tried to conquer the church. It didn't happen. And so he, he intensified his persecution. In the end, he was killed. Um, but in a similar way, in the future, this same thing will happen when the Messiah comes after some intense religious persecution. So that'll come sometime in the future. So this is that parallel. All right, so basic timeline of the book, chapters 1 through 3. This is where the church grows and is purified. These are those different letters to the churches. And I mentioned this before, but those different churches, if you, here's a little picture of them. There are seven churches. This is uh, Turkey today, present-day uh, Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor. And you can see that there's a, a bit of a, it's like in the general region. And actually, if you start from one, you're going to do a little circle in the area. So those seven churches actually represent not just that region, but it represents all churches. And so there's a little bit of symbolic action going on there. And those particular churches, there are, there's a pattern that happens with the, uh, the explanation. First of all, with each church of the seven, it starts off with, I know you. And then there's a description of usually some good and bad. And that, of course, is you know the author, John, who's saying that I know what's going on. Um, in this way, you're good. And in this way, you're bad. You need to grow in this way. You need, you know, you need to stop doing that. And there, there are these blessings that come from it as well. So after the knowledge of the condition and the challenge to change that particular behavior or style or false worship or false um, understanding, then there comes the threats or the blessings. If you don't do this, then this will happen. And if you do do this, then God will bless you. And so there's this pattern that happens. And typically, the uh, first part those first few chapters, um, they're talking about um, a historical, church, historical churches, but the issues that were going on relate to the universal church. Okay, so then after this, this is the purifying of the church, right? The, there was this constant theme, and actually in the last letters of the New Testament, this was going on as well, and that is that the church is trying to hold fast to the authentic um, apostolic tradition and belief. And because of that, there's this, you know, regrouping of the church, trying to preserve that apostolic tradition, and therefore there's this really strong teaching saying you need to reject false teaching, you need to hold on to the apostolic tradition, and then you need to live out in, in a real way the faith and the practice that Jesus taught, which is contained within that apostolic teaching. And so, Anyone who would threaten that would be considered a threat. And therefore, that's why you have some of these um, different people who show up or different sects. Um, the Gnostics tend to be very popular. Um, they're growing in popularity in this age, and so there's a common warning against Gnostics. But all of that is just the idea of preserve the unity and preserve um, the belief, uh, beware of false teachers, 
And those of you, these different churches who were falling into error, they need to be corrected. If they do, then they will be blessed. So the first few chapters are actually almost pastoral letters with individual churches that represent the larger church. Okay, then we start. Chapter 4 and 5, there's this vision and, and really, most, most scripture scholars will say this is a, a change in the style of the text. Some people say the first few chapters are an addition to the overall book of Revelation, the original. Um, some say that's not the case. You know, they kind of go back and forth on that. But most will say there's a difference um, when that starts. And it starts with the idea of the vision. And so the vision begins with the lamb. All right, it doesn't take much for us to figure out who the lamb is, right? You know, Jesus. So there's this image of the lamb, and the, the image shows the greatness of the lamb. The lamb who is, you know, standing. Um, sometimes you'll see some religious art, and you'll see the, uh, the lamb of Revelation, and it'll kind of be laying down with a little flag. And uh, that's incorrect. The lamb is supposed to be standing, because the standing actually is symbolic of victory. And the, the lamb standing shows that even though they tried to kill the lamb, the lamb still stands. And the, the, the lamb is, is all-powerful, and the lamb is divine. And this is the beginning of that vision where it shows that. And, oh, the lamb is worthy. There's, there's always a question. It's like, okay, well, you know, someone needs to open these different seals. You know, because they have these seals, and, and then you've got this lamb. And the lamb is worthy, and the lamb, therefore... It, it is able for those seals to be opened. The seals refer to what is to be revealed by God. All right, so there's these seven seals that come up later. But anyway, the lamb, because of the death and resurrection and the power, has the power, the authority, and the worthiness to open up this vision of the book of Revelation that is given to John. Okay, chapters 6, six through 17, and this is the bulk of the book refers to tribulations and sufferings of the church. So therefore, you've got the martyrs, you've got the wars, you've got the persecutions. Uh, The overall understanding is that the church and the elect will suffer, but they will also have protection from God. Even if someone dies from persecution, they will still be protected by a God because there's the first death and then there's the second death, right? So the first death would refer to death. (laughs) Pretty easy to figure that out. The second death is, okay, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven. And so the point is that even if people suffer the first death, if they are, you know, in union with the lamb, then they won't suffer the second death. Thus, God will protect them ultimately. Now, you know, we can always wonder how exactly that gets spelled out, but in this case, it were, there were people who were dying for the faith, and so the question would come up, well, wait a minute, if we have a God who loves us and protects us, how is it that people are dying for the faith? And the author of John was basically saying that these things have to happen, but God will protect you ultimately if you have faith in him and you persevere in faith. Because if the early church started to fall away because of persecution, then that could be the end of the church. But if it strengthens because of persecution, then you need to have some, you know, some sort of goal in mind or some sort of uh, um, encouragement. And that would be just the overall idea of, well, if you persevere, you'll be in heaven. You know, and that's not just you know, like let them eat cake. It's just you know, kind of the reality of the situation. Okay, so during this time, it's chapter six, 6 through 17. So we have these different seals. Now these seals, you know, they're like parchment paper seals that are rolled up. Um, similar to, does anyone remember when someone in the Old Testament ate a piece of paper that was sour and sweet at the same time? Does that sound familiar? Ezekiel? Ezekiel, yeah. Well, this, this was similar to that. Because the idea of this is that John is, he, he wants to reveal this you know, revelation from God, but he needs the power of the Lamb who is worthy you know, to reveal it first. And so he is going to reveal these different uh, revelations. Now, the seals are actually heavenly in nature. So they're coming from God, 
then the focus and the emphasis of these various seals tend to be of divine origin. So there, for example, it, it, it demonstrates the divine liturgy. Um, have you ever heard that term, by the way, the divine liturgy? So, or the uh, most holy mysteries. I mean, they have these different names for the mass that we have here on earth. But in the book of Revelation, there's this heavenly liturgy that happens and a participation on earth of that same heavenly liturgy. All right, but these seven seals are opening up some of those visions of the seals. And so you've got like incense and you've got, you know, candles and lamps and all these different liturgical items as a sign that the worship of the church is connected to the overall worship that's happening in heaven. All right, so these revelations of seals show the the uh, heavenly side. Well, then... Actually, wait, I did that backwards. The seals are the earthly. It's the trumpets that are the heavenly ones. I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so so just reverse that. Okay, so the, the seals are what's happening on earth, you know, the persecution and all this sort of thing. The trumpets, are those are the things that are happening um, when it comes to God. But it is through the seals that they're being revealed. Now, the trumpets, I guess that makes sense. If you think about, um, you know, those divine trumpets, you tend to see the imagery of, of the angels playing the trumpets. And even in the Old Testament, there are the, uh, uh, the, the idea of trumpets is, is proclaiming God as well. And so you've got the trumpets, which is the godly, and you've got the seals, which is the earthly. Then you've got these different various visions. All right? So the visions are what John is receiving. And after those visions, then you have these plagues. Well, you should instantly think, well, gee, that must refer back to Moses, right? Remember those different plagues? So what was the point of the plagues in, in Exodus? Well, those plagues showed that these were punishments that God was sending out on you know, the world, so to speak, specifically with Egypt, because at the end he triumphed, right? Well, it's the same sort of thing. These, these plagues and these you know, natural disasters and all that are, are very similar to that. They are, um, or the, what comes from the bowls, they're similar to those Old Testament plagues. Let me give you an example about how this would uh, play out in, in the here of that particular time. So this is from uh, the Apocalypse, um, from George Montague. Anyway, it says, living in the last decade of the first century, people have already experienced or learned of some of these events as we know them in Roman history. For example, there were widespread earthquakes in 60 AD, some of which destroyed Laodicea. Um, the Parthians, that's uh, an empire to the east of Rome, the Parthians handed the Roman armies a humiliating defeat in the east in 62 AD. All right, so there was uh, one of the visions had this horse coming from the east who came in. You know, those are the Parthians with the, uh, and the horses had, had a bow and arrows. And uh, that's because the Parthians were known for their, their skill with the bow and the arrow coming from the east, you know, so it was the symbolic of the Parthians coming in and invading um, and punishing the Roman Empire. Fire destroyed much of Rome in 64 AD, and the Christians were blamed and persecuted for it. All right, so that was around Nero. Um, Some speculate whether Nero did that on purpose, like he set the fires himself because he wanted to rebuild the city of Rome and be famous for it. But uh, either way, they blamed the Christians, and to a certain extent, they blamed the Jews too. Um, but anyway, so they would remember the fires. Nero's suicide in 68 AD precipitated political chaos as the four claimants fought over the throne. So just as what happens when, when you've got someone in a position of power like the Roman emperors did, every time one died, there would be um, all those who were vying for um, that position. And so there were a lot of wars and civil wars and, and different things happening at the time. The Jewish-Roman War lasted four years, ending with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Vesuvius, that's a volcano, erupted in 79 AD, wiping out the cities of Pompeii and covering the earth with a cloud of darkness that made people fear the end of the world. In 92 AD, there was a serious famine because of the failure of crops, in grain especially. So you can see these different things that get listed in the book of Revelation are very um, historical in the time of 
the writer and author of John. And the reader of the book would have made these connections with these different famines and plagues and wars and um, these different symbols would be more easily identifiable then than they would be today. Okay, so chapters 18 and 19, you've got the fall of Babylon. Okay, now this one I specifically remember because there was a preacher, and it was a somewhat local preacher, and I remember this because I was in college, and we were beginning the Iraq War, and at the beginning of the Iraq War, um, he was trying to draw a strict, literal connection between the Book of Revelation and the Iraq War. And so he's saying, look at this, Babylon. It's predicted in the Book of Revelation that, that Babylon would be where all this takes place. And where is Babylon? That is current-day Baghdad. Okay, now, first of all, Iraq is where Babylon was, and Baghdad is where current I mean, the uh, former Babylon is, but the word Babylon in the book of Revelation does not refer to Babylon of the Old Testament. It refers to Rome. You know, so that's, that's why. And, and as he's going on, I'm thinking, he has to know he's lying. You know, because no one's that dumb who's, who, who knows the Bible and is preaching about it and, and pretending, you know, that it has to do with modern-day world affairs. It's the most obvious. I mean, you would learn that in your first Bible class. And so you have to think that he's manipulating the book of Revelation uh, so he can manipulate his parishioners. I'm just saying people do it all the time. And that's why it's good to know what this is about. So if you have someone that comes to your door and comes up with this big elaborate theory, you can say, well, you know, that's a great theory and all, but really this is pretty easy to understand and it doesn't mean that. So anyway... Babylon means Rome. Why would Babylon mean Rome? Okay, well, think of the Babylonian Empire. What happened with the Babylonian Empire? Well, that was the destruction of, of Israel in 587 B.C. That was where they deported all the people. And then Babylon became symbolic of immor- immorality and of, of persecution of, of the Jewish nation. Well, at this time, if you were going to have a symbolic center of persecution against the church, what would it be? It would have been the Roman emperor who lived in Rome, right? Makes sense. That, like I'm saying, this, these are, the, in the day, they would have understood this pretty plainly, that when you're saying Babylon, they're not referring to a, an area that was far away from their experience and really didn't have much to do with their current persecution. They would have applied that symbolic Babylon to the present Rome of their day, which also shows how, uh, like when people say the Pope is the Antichrist because, you know, Babylon is Rome. Well, once again, they're not really getting it because at the time of the persecutions, the Roman Emperor, you know, was persecuting the church. After the fall of Rome, which was predicted actually, and then after the era of the church, well, you can't really say that the Pope and the church persecutes itself. It doesn't make sense to say that. So, so once again, it's misapplying um, the, the symbolism in a way that it was never intended. So anyway, the chapters 18 and 19 um, predict the fall of Babylon and Rome and its godless allies. Okay, so after the fall of Rome and its godless allies, we have chapter 20. Now, chapter 20 is referring to um, some specific periods of time. It talks about this millennium, all right, this thousand-year reign. And then at the end of this thousand-year reign, there is persecution and then a final battle. And anyway, that, that persecution and final battle will end with the passing of the age and the general judgment, the final judgment. This is all in chapter 20. And then chapter 21 and chapter 22 is this new era, that's the new heavens and the new earth. Because at this time, after the final judgment, um, all things evil and bad are going to be done away with. There will be no more antichrists or Rome emperors who are persecuting the church. The Messiah is going to effect his plan. And after that point, there will be the connecting of the heavens and the earth in a new way, where the earth gets transformed in a similar way that our bodies will be transformed. 
we kind of got into that last week, but so I'm not going to get into it again this week, but just keep that in mind. The earth as we know it will change. So when Jesus does come back again, it's going to be the end of sin and death and all that, but the earth itself is going to be transformed and transfigured in a similar way to how Jesus' own body was transformed and transfigured and how we as Christians will have that new resurrected body sometime in the future. Once again, think about it in your off time, how that all comes about. But anyway, that's the general overall teaching of the church. And it showed it not only in the book of Revelation, but a lot of Paul's writings and uh, some post-Pauline writings. Okay, so we're going to move on from there. I see Marty having that look again. <laughs> so, but anyway, just keep that in mind. So, so here's the basic timeline. You've got the church is being persecuted and the church is growing and being purified. Then you have all these tribulations, the wars, the persecutions. The elect are going to suffer, but they have protection from God. Then there's the fall of the Roman Empire, and there's this thousand-year reign. At the end of this thousand-year reign, there's this intense persecution and final battle. God, of course, wins at the final battle. And then you have the passing of judgment and the new age where you have the new heavens and the new earth. So there's your timeline. Now, sometimes people say, well, what's that thousand-year thing? Um, you know, does that refer to a literal thousand years? Um, St. Augustine actually addressed that. He said, well, looking at Scripture as a whole, when you look at numbers like a thousand, you can't be overly literal with them. What it means is a long period of time, and it's the era of the church. So in other words, the, the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginning of this thousand-year reign is the era of the church, where it's going to be relatively um, able to function and and pursue its own goals and, and live in the world uh, with that special protection of Jesus. But there will come a time in the future, because we're still in the era of the church, that there will be intense um, religious persecution and a falling away of the faith. And then when it gets at its most intense, uh, Jesus will come back. And at that point, there will be the general judgment, new heavens and the new earth. All right, so that thousand just means a long period of time between the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the era of the church and the second coming. All right, so it's not a thousand years literally. If that were the case, it would have happened uh, about a thousand years ago. You guys probably figured that out. It's the same idea as in the Old Testament where 70 doesn't mean 70. It means a long time. Right. In the words, like the numbers mean different things. Um, I'm going to go over some of these symbols real quickly um, toward the end of this. But yeah, a thousand just means a long period of time. Um, think about this. This is a classic example. Okay, 12 means the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, 12 also means the 12 apostles, right? So you've got Israel and you've got the new Israel, the church, um, formulated, of course, by the 12 apostles. So this 12, then all of a sudden you get this number. What's this 144,000, right? Well, how do you get 144? Well, 12 times 12 is 144, right? And then you add 1,000 because that means long you know, or big. You know, so then you have, you know, the Israel, the church, um, represented in the 144 at 1,000. That represents this multitude of people. And so when you hear about the 144,000 in Scripture, some people thought, well, that must be 144,000, literally the only ones who were saved. But they're missing how that symbol is used. What it means is a great multitude of people, which is the new Israel and the church. And if you read on from that point, you'll see it starts out saying 144,000, but then as, the, um, as it goes on, it talks about multitudes and multitudes of people. So anyway, that, that's a good example of someone who reads that literally would miss its real meaning. And of course, people have done that throughout the ages. Okay, here's a summary, actually. In chapter 12... So I'll show you how this symbolism thing works. You've all heard this a uh, hundred times because this is the one where there's a woman in the you know cloud, you know. So anyway, I'm just going to read it and then then we'll explain it. But I'm just going to do the first part. So now a great sign appeared in the heavens: a woman robed with the sun, standing on the moon, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and in labor, crying aloud in the pangs of childbirth. Then a second sign appeared, and there was a huge red dragon with seven heads 
then ten horns, okay, heads and horns. Um, seven means, you know, a lot of heads, you know, with power, and ten horns. Horns are representative of power as well. And each of the seven heads, crowned with a coronet, its tail swept a third of the stars from the sky and hurled them to the ground, okay, natural disasters and all that. And the dragon stopped in front of the woman as she was at the point of giving birth so that he could eat the child as soon as it was born. The woman was delivered of a boy, the son who was to rule all nations with an iron scepter, and the child was taken straight up to God and to the throne. While the woman escaped into the desert, where God had prepared a place for her to be looked after for 1,260 days. Okay, so who's the woman? So you're all saying Mary, and that's not the primary reference, actually. The church, yeah. So the primary reference here of the woman is the church. And uh, if you could think about this, it's also Israel. So you've got the woman represents Israel and the church and Mary all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Whew. But if you, if you read it with that in mind, then, okay, so you have this sign. There's a woman who gives birth to a son, right? She's, she's cry, crying aloud and pangs a childbirth. Well, this is before the Messiah was coming, how they were eagerly expecting and waiting uh, for the Messiah to come. And then there's going to be this, you know, dragon who tries to, um, you know, conquer, but in the end it didn't happen, right? Because what happened? Well, the, the child... Uh, went up to heaven, well, Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And then you have the woman who remains on earth being protected in the desert. Well, that goes back to the Old Testament where you had the Israelites protected in the desert. They looked at that time in the desert as an intimate time with God. So, so the woman who is in the desert protected shows that the church is being protected during this time. And in the end, you know, the woman would you know, continue to exist like that. Then you have the war breaking out in heaven where Michael and the angels attacked the dragon. The dragon fought back, but they were defeated and driven out. The great dragon, known as the devil or Satan, who had led the world astray, was hurled down to earth, and the angels were hurled down with him. And then I heard a voice shout from the heaven. Salvation and power and empire forever has been won by our God and the authority for his Christ. Okay, so then at the end, the dragon found himself hurled to the earth. He sprang up in pursuit of the woman the mother of the male child, but she was given a pair of great eagle wings to fly away from the serpent into the desert to the place where she was to be looked after for a time, two times, and a half time. So the serpent vomited water from his mouth like a river and after the woman to sweep her away with a current. But the earth came to her rescue and it opened its mouth and swallowed the river spewed by the dragon's mouth. The dragon was enraged with the woman and was swept and went away to make war on the rest of her children who obey God's commandments and have themselves the witness of, of Jesus. So you've got this idea of the remnant, Israel, the church, and of course the descendants of the church, which the dragon is going to um, continue to wage war on. Now at the end, of course, the, the dragon um, will be conquered. But these signs and symbols give a bit of a, a description of the history. You know, that there was the, the, uh, the son who was a son of Israel who came and was born. The, the devil uh, tried to do away with him, but you know that didn't happen, obviously. Jesus died, but he rose from the dead. And then you have the formation of the church. The church survives, and the people in the church are protected in the desert. And the dragon comes after, but ultimately, you know, the, you know, Christ, the Lamb, or the Messiah will, you know, be, will conquer the devil. And in the meantime... You've got Michael and the angels um, constraining him so that he's not able to overcome the church. All right, that goes back to the keys of the kingdom. It goes back to I'm with you always until the end of time. Um, I will found my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Anyway, it's, it's all tied into that whole thing. So, but in a way, it's primarily the church and Israel, the remnant Israel, the true Israel. But it also refers to Mary because Mary gave birth to to uh, Jesus, right? So that's where mother of the church comes. You ever heard that? Mary, personification, daughter Zion. You ever heard those signs? And, yeah. Anyway, it all comes from, well, it comes from more than just the book of Revelation, but primarily that section. Okay, so now, enough of that. I talked a little bit about the Roman emperors and the dates, so we won't worry about that. So, 
Here's some of the, uh, the signs and symbols that pertain to worship in the book of Revelation. There's a lot that, lot that happens in the book of Revelation shows that there's this divine worship that mirrors the earthly worship. There's a connection. So when we worship on earth, we are participating in the divine worship. When the sky is opened up and there are these visions of divine worship, then there's also this um, understanding that our earthly worship is a participation in the divine worship. And to just show that worship is prominent in Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb of God, and the Lamb is used 28 times. And so why the Lamb? Well, think about the Lamb of Sacrifice of the Old Testament. You know, that the Lamb was the, was the primary symbol of sacrifice, and when they did the Passover meal, you know, you had to have a lamb, you had to eat the lamb. Um, but in this case, you have the Passover sacrifice that um, is also, you know, divine himself. So it, it, it shows that relation to worship. You've got an altar in Revelation chapter 8. You've got clergy investments, chapter 4, verse 4. You've got candles, incense, manna, chalices, Sunday worship. If you notice when John has the beginning of his um, revelations, it says on the Lord's Day. You know, that was Sunday. So this worship is happening on Sundays. You've got Mary in the church, which I already talked about. You've got the Holy, 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 um, chapter 4, verse 8, um, which, of course, comes from the book of Revelation, you know, that Holy, Holy, Holy we have during Mass. You've got a Gloria, chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. You've got the sign of the cross, 14, chapter 1. Um, it doesn't specifically say they were crossing themselves, but it has them, you know, kind of placing that on their bodies and all. Then you've got an Alleluia, chapter 19, verses 1, 3, and 6. You've got more than one Alleluia. But, um, you've got Scripture, chapter 2, verse 3. You've got saints and intercession. Um, by the way, if anyone ever says that the saints have, you know, no idea what goes on on earth and, and they don't pray for us or anything like that, then they don't know their book of Revelation. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, and chapter 14, verses 3 and 6 through 7, show this interceding, intercessory-type prayer by the saints at the altar of God on behalf of the people on earth. And um, it refers to it a few different ways, but first of all, it has these four patriarchs, and uh, there's some different suggestions on who, that were, who they were, but um, it could be that they're symbolic of the four directions, meaning all of the patriarchs of Israel that came before. Um, but either way, there, there's the core. And then you have the martyrs. Now, the martyrs are actually explained as being under the altar of God, praying on behalf of those who are suffering persecution in the present. So, you ever heard that relics are put in altars sometime? Well, that's one of the reasons, because it's, if it's symbolic of the heavenly worship, then... It would make sense that especially if you do have a saying, it should be a martyr, in an altar is a sign of, you know, those who are interceding for us as we celebrate Mass. They're praying for us, especially those who are being persecuted. Well, at the time of the book of Revelation, it would be good for people to realize that, yes, you're being persecuted, but, you know, you've got all those martyrs that are praying for you. You know, so hang in there. You know, once again, everything in there is basically saying, Hang in there. Keep up, keep up the good fight. And in the end, God will be victorious. And also you have the uh, baptism, chapter 7, verse 14. So, as you can see, uh, the book of Revelation is a liturgical book in many ways. It shows that, that the liturgy and the worship and the connection between heaven and earth in the worship is something that sustains the people. And it's something that, that brings about... Um, the, you know, the, the, well, first of all, it holds back the power of Satan, and it also encourages Jesus to come again. All right, which is kind of interesting because there are a lot of people who fear the second coming of Jesus. They think that somehow if Jesus comes again, it's going to be scary, and I don't want that to happen during my lifetime. We as Christians should actually encourage Jesus to come back, and that's why we say, you know, come Lord Jesus. You know, we say that as part of our prayer, and it should be, because we who are in Christ, who are followers of the Lamb, look forward to this new heavens and new earth. We look forward to this, this you know, final battle and judgment where the Lamb is victorious once and for all. Makes sense, right? 
I know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, yeah, but I don't want to have to go through all the persecutions. But remember, you know, even if you do, God will be there with you in it all. He'll preserve you. So here's the real moral of the story. Followers of Jesus need to persist and persevere in faith. Even if you die, God will protect you. So be aware of seducing powers. There are going to be governments who are going to try to control your faith. Don't let them do it. There are going to be false or twisted religions that are going to try to um, change your faith or lead you astray. Don't let that happen. Learn the lessons of the past. Israel gave Jesus over to the state. The temple was crushed. The Roman Empire will also fall, as it did. God always wins in the end. All right, so they're, they're calling back uh, Old Testament history as, as well as recent history in the minds of the people um, who were reading the book of Revelation or hearing it. And also, worship in spirit and truth, because God is God and Jesus is divine. God is on the throne, there's the Lamb, and there's the church, and we all have a share in that. So, the real moral of the story, you can see that, you know, that's, that's a book that we should all say, this is an uplifting, wonderful, great, exciting book that helps me to live my faith better and be excited about it. Can you see how the book of Revelation definitely does not mean I need to be scared of it because it's all scary and, and like a horror movie. See the difference? Now, a lot of people who are into the doom and gloom gospel will use the book of Revelation to try to scare people, thinking that, you know, it's like, if, if, if you don't know all the scary stuff that's going to happen, you know, you better know it, and this is why, and it's like a horror movie they're, they're talking about. And Anyway, that's just the opposite of what the book was written to be about in the first place. So... So there you go. There's my little preaching. But the real moral of the story is a good, uplifting, and positive message. All right, so some of the signs and symbols. First of all, the uh, first beast is the Roman Empire and all of its evil. Okay, then there are the other animals, right? You've got the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Okay, so the leopard are the Persians, the bear are the Medes, and the lion is Babylon. Okay, now, those are the same... um, those are the same beasts or empires that happened in the book of Daniel, right? Remember that? And the reason is these Roman empires embody all the evil of these formal, uh, former empires. All right, so there's a parallel going back to Daniel. The red horse is war. The black horse is famine. By the way, you don't have to memorize all this stuff. If you've got a Bible with commentary, it'll list it. But, but it, I'm just kind of going over it real quick. So the uh, red horse is war, the black horse is famine, the white horse is victory, conquest, and then the pale green horse is plague or death. Well, that kind of makes sense when you think about it. Red, blood, right, war, um, black horse, famine, and then when you see pale green, what do you do when you get sick? You're kind of green. You know, so these are not far-out symbols. So the dragon is evil personified, the devil, Satan, the serpent, the accuser. So you've got these four... Um, four animals, the lion, the bull ox, the eagle, and the man. So these four symbolize all of creation, and they're also used as symbols of the evangelists later on, but the primary, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see them symbolically used for that, but their primary image were the um, all of creation. Think about four. You've got south, south, north, east, and west, right? Or you have the four winds. So in the ancient world, they used symbols to represent that, meaning all of creation. So that's what those four mean. So the lion, you have nobility. The bullocks, you have strength. The eagle, you have swiftness. And the man, you have wisdom. And a lot of these symbols actually have Old Testament um, roots. And these Old Testament roots, like which come from Ezekiel, um, they actually will even have other references to other cultures or empires. So, for example, the Assyrians had these um, different animals and in Babylon, you can still to this day see these like, you know, winged horses and things like, not winged ho- winged bulls, winged somethings. I think they're bulls. <laughs> but anyway, don't quote me on that. Okay, so the lamb is Jesus Christ, obviously. And so the lion of Judah, well, that's Christ's kingly powers. And then the beasts are the Roman emperors, you know, just like the beasts in the book of Daniel. Okay, then you've got these people. So you've got the angel. Well, that's the messenger, right? That's the one who explains. That goes back to the Old Testament um, prophets 
who they would see something and then an angel would describe what they were seeing. You know, it was a very common formula. You've got the bride. We should know what that is, right? Who's the bride? The church, yes. See how easy this is. They are the faithful new Jerusalem who are wed to Christ. All right, so you've got the Gog and Magog. Well, once again, an Old Testament reference to the pagan nations who are leagued against the church. Then you've got the harlot, the city of Rome. Okay, so that's after the goddess of Rome. By the way, there's a connection with that. Um, but when you hear about the whore of Babylon, it's actually referring to, the, uh, you know, to Rome and the Roman emperor. Then there's Jezebel. Well, you all know who Jezebel is, right? So Jezebel was symbolic of the time of, of uh, the prophet Elijah, that Jezebel was the wife who was leading people into the Canaanite religions against Elijah's prophecies. So she became a sign and a symbol of not only a harlot, but also one who like leads people away from the true faith. So that's, she's a symbol of a seducer to pagan worship or to the emperor. All right, Michael... Well, not enough good things can be said about Michael. But Archangel, protector of the church and of Israel. You got the Nicolaitans, and they were a heretical sect of early Christians, and they tended to be a um, little Gnostic, but they, were, they also incorporated a lot of pagan practices, and they had this idea of unrestricted freedom. And so this is what John seemed to be kind of battling them in his church in his time. You've got saints. Those are the people who are strong, and they are the faithful to withstand persecution, even to martyrdom. Then you have these spirits, the seven spirits. Those are the servants and the prophets of the past. You've got the ten kings. Those are the nations helping Rome to persecute Christians. All right, so other countries who were doing similar things at the time. You've got these two witnesses. Well, Moses and Elijah are figures of the entire church's witness to Christ. Then you've got the woman and the son. That's the church giving birth to the new Israel, um, personified also in Mary. You've got the elders. That's the church and its leadership. Then you've got servants, prophets. And you have God, the source of revelation. All right, now, in these symbols, you also will have colors. White means purity, joy, victory, and holiness. All right, think about liturgically speaking when we use colors like this, too. Green, we... Uh, you know, it's kind of similar, but... Okay, so white is purity, joy, victory, and holiness. Black, evil, disaster, sorrow, famine, and death. Death. There actually are black vestments. It's still liturgically correct. If we wanted to have a funeral, we could wear black. No one does, because people would probably freak out if they see a priest in black doing a funeral. But, but it's possible, because it represents the, the reality of death. Okay, red... Martyrdom, well, that's easy to imagine, right? Blood. But you also see it like Good Friday and stuff like that where the feast, John, the beheading of John the Baptist that we'll use red is a sign of martyrdom. Scarlet, um, that's luxury and magnificence. And similar to that, purple, which is royalty, kingship, and luxury. That's because those are the two colors that were reserved to the emperor. Um, first of all, purple was an extremely costly color because it was derived from a small mollusk off the coast of Lebanon, and it was so rare that only extremely rich people could have purple. That's why when Lazarus dressed himself in purple, it showed he was being extravagant and wasteful in his, in, even in his clothing. You know. All right, purple, and then there's green, which is fertility, new life, growth, this kind of thing. That's why uh, ordinary time we have green because it's a sign of growth. These are the miracles and teachings of Jesus, so therefore we should be growing. It's a time of fertile development. Okay, so there are these different places, um, and there are different um, signs and symbols and numbers. Alpha and omega, you probably have heard of that before, right? The first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet um, refers to um, the beginning and the end of all which is a divine reference. So when Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, it's a divine reference to him. Babylon, of course, that's Rome. Hades or Sheol, that's the uh, Greek and Hebrew words for the abyss 
or the, the place of the dead. There's the Euphrates. Well, that's the boundary between the Parthians and the Romans. Now, I know literally the Euphrates River is, is in Mesopotamia or current-day current Iraq, but they would look at it as that boundary where the Parthians and the Romans were constantly at war. There's the New Jerusalem where the faithful dwell. There's the sea. Now, that's a domain of evil, death, and insecurity. People were afraid of the sea, and uh, anyone who's been in a storm on the sea knows why. But they had this also, they, they, they had this image of all the spirits living underneath the sea too. So they were kind of scared that the spirits would come up through the sea. And, you know, so it was a kind of a fearful thing. But you also have the sea of glass. That's the sea above the dome where God dwells. So, they, so if you look up in the sky, the book of Genesis describes creation as if it's almost like a snow globe. You know, like this round thing with these little holes where the rain would come through. And... You know, when they symbolically, of course, they knew that this isn't really the case, but they describe it um, poetically as the idea of the sea of glass over the top of the dome where God dwells. You know, you can, anyway. Um, also, when you have this, this glass, it, it represents the, um, almost like in the temple, they had this, this glass area that it was water, but it was always kind of smooth and clear, and so they think there could be a connection to that, too. The seven hills, well, there were seven hills in Rome, right? So that would be that reference. The synagogue of Satan, and those were the Jews who were helping Romans persecute Christians, you know, basically jumping on the bandwagon. Um, of course, not all Jews did because they were being persecuted also. Um, but it's just, you know, anyone who's in collusion with the Roman Empire are considered to, you know, be evil people. Then you have the desert. You know, that's safety and God's protection, patterned after the intimate time of God with the Israelites in the desert. And then you have Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is the Jezreel Valley. If you look on the country of Israel, going from the Mediterranean Sea, going over to the Sea of Galilee, you have this big valley in there that's kind of flat. Because it's a big valley, it's flat, and it tends to be a place where people are coming one way or another to invade um, a lot of wars were fought there because of a big open plain. It's also a crossroad uh, between people and empires who would be coming back and forth between Egypt and, and uh, Babylon and Greece. So obviously there were a lot of wars that were fought. So the idea of, of Armageddon meaning a great war. It doesn't literally mean that there's going to be a battle at the Jezreel Valley in Israel that's going to be the literal Armageddon that Jesus is coming back into. So once again, you have to look at the big symbolic image here. Y'all, you've all heard that, right? When people talk about Armageddon. Yeah, so it's like the battle. All right, numbers. One is the unity of God. Three means like the Trinity, or also can be blessings or invocations or heaven, earth, and the abyss. Four, those are visible words um, with the four corners south, north, east, and west, and it also means entirety or totality. Six means imperfection. Well, if you take one away from seven, you've got an imperfect number because seven means perfect. So um, ten is fullness and completeness. Of course, you can think about the Ten Commandments. You know, that's one big reason there. Um, twelve, the twelve tribes, uh, the people having reached perfection or the church. 1,000 is symbolic of a great number. 7,000, all the society. 12,000 refers to a short time of persecution before the resurrection of the martyrs. Then you've got all these other things. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, one time, another time and a half time. You know, you hear all this stuff. All that refers to is a short time of persecution before the resurrection of the martyrs. Okay, so then you've got the 144,000. I've explained that one. And then you have one-third. The end has not completely arrived. And then you have half of an hour. That's the calm before the storm and the last plagues. All right, so they're just different periods of time. They're not really supposed to be so literally understood. All right, so time's almost up, so I'll just kind of whiz through here. So the Book of Life, those are the names of the faithful. The Little Scroll, that's the message telling Christians of future persecution. The Mark of the Beast, those who are branded to participate in emperor worship. 
uh, the bow or the sword, sign of war. Scales, that's a sign of famine because food had to be weighed out in times of famine before they were distributed. Um, eyes, like you notice the lamb has all these eyes. That's like wisdom and knowledge. Um, horns means power. Satan is a source of evil. The large scroll, that's the book of destinies or doom for those on earth. The seal of God. Spirit of the Father in the hearts of Christians. So the two olive trees are the two lamps. That's the church. Uh, the first death, okay, earthly dying. The second death, you know, well, that would be hell, you know. All right, seals, trumpets, and bowls. Those are the calamities on earth before the final reward. The tree of life, eternal life. Lamp stands, those are, those are churches. The cloud, it's a place of manifestation of God. Think about um, when they were in the desert, the cloud followed them wherever they went. So it's a sign of where God is present. Wings, of course, mobility and, and flight. Palms, that's a sign of triumph. Like when they have all the martyrs holding palms in artwork, that means victory. So Palm Sunday actually literally means victory because those palms represent triumph and victory. Through the death of Jesus, he's victorious. All right, right hand, you all know what that is, power. Then there's the key. Well, that's a symbol of authority. Just like when Jesus gives the authority to Peter. You know, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. A uh, similar thing happened with Isaiah. You know, you give the keys to the prime minister. So it's an idea of passing on that authority. Crown, well, it's pretty easy. Royalty, kingship. Harp, heavenly music. Two-edged sword. That's the word of God that judges and punishes. It cuts both ways. Book of Hebrews says that too. All right, there's, there's uh, witnessing, which is persecution. There's the woman, the people of the city, and the stars. That's the universal dominion and powers. All right, so like when you think about the wars going on with stars being cast aside, well, that represents, you know, the uh, earthly powers and um, countries and, and dominions. Okay, so that's the overview. So any questions on the book of Revelation? Actually, let me ask you this, though. Just like I said, I know I was going 100 miles an hour, but if you're going to read the book of Revelation, do you think you could get the gist of it if you kind of had a, like you knew what all the symbols represented? Because that's the point. This story is told in symbols and images that a Jew or a Christian would understand, but a Roman wouldn't. Somewhat, yes. Yeah, a lot of apocalyptic literature was written in a way so that the primary readers would understand it, but the persecutors might not. It wouldn't take much for a persecutor to figure it out, but it maybe would be too much work for them to try to want to do it. Just the babblings of you know, crazy people. Yeah. Um, sometimes, though, that, that is true, though, that um, in general, um, Christians and, and Jews would have understand the symbols, and the persecutors wouldn't have understood them as easily, but sometimes uh, people take that too far to say they couldn't understand it, and that's not really the case. They could, um, but... It was one way of kind of keeping things um, kind of on the inside. So that is true. Yeah? On the dragon that had the horns, I just want to make sure which kind of horns are we talking about here? Is this the horns of power, or are we talking about the horns that we normally see? Well, the, the symbol is, is a horn, but the horns were you know, on bulls and stuff back then, and, and that was a sign or a symbol of strength and power. So when you talk about the horn of Israel, you're talking about the power of Israel, um, they used to have horns on altars and stuff like that as well. But in this case, the horns on the dragon just mean that it's a dragon who has some power. So sometimes it's hard to imagine the, the different figures because there are so many different ones, you know, like seven-headed lambs and, you know, and all this kind of stuff with multiple eyes. But... You just have to kind of get the general overall, um, like what it's there for, instead of trying to overly figure out what it looks like artistically. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, why does Satan have horns? Yeah, the, the image that we have of Satan actually comes from the god Pan more than anything. And, um, of course, there's always some little adaptations there, but 
if you look at like mythology and you see the god Pan, then that's pretty close to what Satan looks like. But horns, I don't know. They could have, they could also take that from the, the old dragon thing. But yeah. <laughs> all right. Any other questions? You're all good. See, it's not that hard, is it? No. All right. So anyway. This concludes the overview of the scripture. So anyway, in the future, I'll probably do something on sec- sections of the Bible, like parables or um, you know, maybe infancy narratives or the resurrection scenes and things like that. Maybe I'll just do themes or something. But for September, Father Theo is going to do some Tuesday night gatherings based on um, different writings of extra-testamental literature and stuff like that. So... I'll let him go nuts for September, and then I'll do something later. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you all.